Help support the Candid Frame in bringing you awesome conversations with great photographers. You can do this by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. That modest donation helps us to bring a quality show to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Photographer Matt Payne did not grow up wealthy. He always had a roof over his head and food on the table, but there were times when he could see that his parents struggled financially. What his parents lacked in finances, they made up for with their love of the outdoors, which they shared with their son. They took advantage of the natural beauty that their home in Colorado had to offer. And with the aid of his stepfather, Matt had climbed his first 14,000-foot mountain by the age of six. Those regular summer outings resulted in some wonderful memories, but it also instilled in him a deep-held respect for nature that has informed his choices as a photographer. How you're raised and the, the reasons that you go up into these places and into nature, I think it informs your motivation later in life. You know, I remember my parents, we would go to up into the mountains all the time and you'd see people that would carve their names in the aspen trees with a mm. knife. It'd be there forever, right? And the tree would just die, basically. As far as back as I can remember, it's like, never, ever, ever do that. And I was like, yes, mom, like, I will never do that, right? I guess what I'm trying to say is it informs your motivations as a photographer later in life. So when I go out with my camera to these places in nature, I'm not thinking about, like, what, are, what can I do in order to maximize my financial gain? Or what can I do in order to get the most likes on Instagram? Or how do I make it to where I get more people following me on Facebook or whatever? Like my motivations aren't about money or fame or business, you know, even though that stuff, that stuff can follow naturally. I think if you're passionate enough, people will see that. But what I'm doing is I'm experiencing these places and just loving where I'm at and trying to capture those moments and share them with other people and for and for myself for my future so I can look back and like, oh, that was one of the most amazing mountain climbs I've ever done. And I really want to remember that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like your motivations can be informed by your ex- past experiences. And I think, like you said, what, what I'm seeing a lot of times is that in this digital age right now is people are motivated more about fame and Instagram likes. As a photographer, Matt began to experience the natural world in a different way. But he's always had a keen awareness that nature, the wild, exists on its own terms. And it's not just there for people to take pretty pictures. Learning to put aside his own expectations has helped him to embrace what Mother Nature has to offer. Some of my best photographs have come out of situations where maybe the light wasn't as good or, you know, the thing that you were planning on shooting didn't really materialize, but then it forces you to kind of think differently about the scene or, you know, what if I, what if I hiked over there and saw what was uh, on the other side of that hillside or up on that ridge? And then you're like, oh my God, why didn't I do this to begin with? So I think if, if we go out into the fields and just be have an open mind about what we can what we'll find it, it really does help open up the possibilities but i think it also it forces you to try things that maybe it'll work maybe it won't work but like you said it will help inform future images yeah. and be a better photographer in the in the long run 
We'll talk to Matt about how becoming a father himself has impacted his photography and how his own podcast, F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen, provides him a personal source for inspiration. And later, I'll introduce you to a new segment that revolves around shells, a little blonde girl, and dreaming the impossible. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, thanks for sitting down with me and, and chatting with me. I'm looking forward to, to talking with you. Uh, yeah. I want to start talking about your beginnings, because I know that your stepdad played a real big role in you and your experience of the, out, of the outdoors. And I think that that's, it's always interesting to see how people, through the relationship with their parent, whether it's their dad or their mother or stepmother or whatever the situation is, get instilled with something that they carry through the rest of their lives. That somehow that little germ of, of activity that's shared makes a huge difference. And I know that that's part of your story, but I really would like you to share with us, you know, about those beginnings, not just about the activity, but the relationship, because I think that that really is plays a big role in terms of why you love the landscape and nature, nature and not just photographing nature so much. Yeah, well, I mean, I think for me, it's like because I'm a parent also and just listening to what you just said, it reminded me of just how much power and influence we have as adults with children. You know, when I was growing up, um, my, my parents especially especially my stepdad, really instilled a value of appreciating nature, but not just like, let's go on hikes. You know, it was like every time we would show up to a campsite, we would spend the first two or three hours cleaning the campsite up. And we would haul away all kinds of trash that people had left behind. We would clean up fire rings that people had left. We would just make the place better than the way we found it. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, I was like, oh, that's, that's fine. You know, that makes sense. It's, you know, we want to, we want this place to be nice for our camp experience today. But I didn't, I guess I didn't really fully appreciate what it is they were instilling in me at the time. And looking back on it, it's when you, when you have someone that you look up to every day of your life showing you how to, through, through their actions, Mm-hmm. How to take care of a place, um, and how to how to think about a place, and how to appreciate a place. It really changes your relationship with that place and with with nature. So you know that those values are carried by me today, and I can I have to thank my parents for that. Um, and you know, it's not just the values of wanting uh, nature to to stay pristine and and doing doing whatever you can in order to further that cause. It's also, I feel like when we expose, as adults, when we expose children to these places at an early age and we show them how amazing these places can be, it plants a seed in their mind that I think can grow into this huge tree of appreciation later in their life that I think is... What's often missing with some of the some people that you see visiting these places as adults that maybe not their own fault, but they didn't have those experiences growing mm, up, and so they don't necessarily point. have the same values and the same kind of thought process about a place and about the outdoors. So, I, yeah, I, I strongly believe in whatever we can do to educate kids and get them out into nature and show them what's amazing about those places and how what their role is in 
protecting those places and making it so that they can experience those places the same way and their kids and their kids' kids and so on and so forth. How old were you when your stepfather came into your life? I was, I think I was less than one years old. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he, he adopted me uh, when I was when I was five. I remember that because I got to... I, I got to come out of school that day. <laughs> so I remember that. But yeah, I mean, so he, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he was, he was my dad. Mm-hmm. So I never, I never really thought about him as my stepdad. Um, but he, he was always very clear. He always wanted me to call him by his first name, Ray. So I always called him Ray. And every, everyone around me always thought that was weird. Like, why are you calling your dad Ray? <laughs> It's funny. It was, you said that um, you guys, you know, weren't particularly well off, and that was partly the reason why you guys ended up spending so much time in the outdoors. Uh, describe to me what your life was like in terms of limited income. What did that look like? Yeah, so it was a bit of a roller coaster, to be perfectly honest. Neither of my parents had a college education. My mom didn't even have her GED until much later in life. So they were always working blue collar jobs that often would, you know, based on the economy, like they would get laid off. Mm. And so it was very volatile. And my parents did a great job of kind of shielding me from that. Uh, You know, they did the best they could in terms of making sure we always had food um, and shelter and things like that. But it was always very apparent to me that uh, we did not have extra money for anything else. (laughs) You know what I Mm. mean? Like we could pay our rent. We had an old super old clunky vehicles that would break down constantly. And so, you know, kind of in a side story, like now as an adult, whenever I have vehicle problems, I'm like, I just get really nervous because I, because <laughs> yeah. uh, that was just my experience growing up. Like it would do, it would just be very disruptive. Even if I have money now, it's like, I still have that mentality in the back of my head that, oh, this is going to be really bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah, so I remember, I think I was in, eighth grade no 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 no. I was in I was in sixth grade both of my parents got laid off at the exact same time and so it was just I remember we would go to like food banks and you know we were asking friends and family to help just with the basics so um it just I don't know when you when you grow up in that environment you have a much different appreciation for the stuff that I think most of us take for granted every day. Mm-hmm. And you also have a, just a different mentality that informs your behaviors. Um, not necessarily all good either. Uh, there's a lot of research out there showing, you know, people that, are, that live in poverty, you know, you, you make really bad decisions because all you can focus on is the short-term needs yeah. that you have and you can't plan ahead and you, you just, your brain... It's it's like scarcity. There was a whole podcast on Hidden Brain oh, about that, yeah, yeah. which was really good. But yeah, so I think growing up in that lifestyle and that environment, it definitely informed a lot of who I am today and the types of things that I appreciate and the types of things that I necessarily don't... Uh, how do I say this? I have different attitudes about wealth and mm-hmm. um, you know people that do have lots of means. Um, I which is definitely my own personal bias based on the way that I grew up. So, but yeah, it definitely informs a lot of the way that my brain works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I commend your parents for creating a situation where you guys still had a shared experience. Cause as you said, when you're living in poverty, when you're living under limited means, the luxury of spending quality time as a family becomes 
even more difficult, right? For and sure. it's and it's wonderful that you guys were able to utilize the outdoors to have that sort of shared experience, to have sort of a, a reprieve from all the financial challenges that you were facing, and to have an experience that extended throughout throughout your life. Yeah. You know, it's really, really nice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I definitely would be a completely different person. And I, I even look at my own son who has definitely, he's 10, and he's had a much different experience than I have growing up. You know, he's never had to worry about that kind of stuff. It's it's just interesting to see, like, the stuff that he thinks about, like, oh, I've, I've never been to Hawaii, Dad. Like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah. I never saw the ocean until I was 30 years old. So, uh, (laughs) you know, like you have it so easy, buddy. You don't even know. (laughs) Your experiences in the outdoors weren't just these camping trips. You would go on these hikes where you got, you're going pretty high altitudes and, you know, and sort of navigating these peaks, which I think is really interesting, especially. I wonder even as a young kid whether I would have wanted to or could have done, you know, yeah. some of the things that you did. That seems to have been a real big part of your experience. Why were those important? And if you could explain it a little better than I did, uh, what you did and, and why it was so important. Well, I mean, we're very fortunate in Colorado that that a lot of the mountains that are in Colorado are, are pretty accessible by road in terms of, um, you know, you can get to, the, to a trailhead that is at... 10, 11,000 feet by car, which is great in some ways. It's bad in others that we could talk about later, but in terms of the masses of people that go to those places because of that ease of access. Mm-hmm. But I mean, essentially, you're camping uh, 9, 10,000 feet and then hiking up to 13, 14,000 feet. Back, back then, there wasn't a lot of the mountains didn't have a lot of trails. So, you know, you're learning route finding, you're, you're learning, you're, you're going up like 45 degree vertical pitch on boulders and rocks that are loose. And so like, you have to learn how, like, how to identify rocks that are loose versus rocks that are stable. And so you, and how do you down climb those? Mm-hmm. And, um, you have to be careful about how the weather, because the weather can, the biggest risk up there is the weather, in my opinion, because in the afternoon, the, you know, the, the inversion happens and all the heat rises up into the clouds and it creates huge thunderstorms that just come out of nowhere within like 15 minutes that you can't really predict. So you have to constantly, be aware of your surroundings and I don't know it's uh you're like on an adventure every weekend right like I don't I'm trying to answer your question because I was just more just explaining yeah what what it's like but but that's a good example because I think that that experience and that awareness of nature instills a level of respect for it that I think is often lacking by the people who go there casually Uh, I just saw a video today of some guy who got out of his car to taunt a buffalo. I don't know exactly where it was, but I was just like, one, that's stupid. (laughs) Two, it's totally stressful and for the animal itself. Granted, there are a bunch of cars on the road that the buffalo was trying to sort of navigate. But there's this sort of disrespect, obliviousness to nature and its potential to not only harm us, but for us to do harm to it. And I think that uh, as much as people say that they love nature, I think that there's a certain level of obliviousness 
and disrespect that happens far too often, often, especially in the in the Instagram age, where all people are concerned about is getting a snapshot and yeah. don't care about anything else. So I well, think, yeah, go ahead. It's, um, you know, it's as you're as you're saying that I'm thinking, you know, your your how you're raised and the the reasons that you go up into these places and in, into nature i think it informs your motivation later in life so like you take someone like me you know i was lucky enough to have those experiences early on and gain that appreciation of these places and and have a healthy respect for what nature can do to you but also have a healthy respect for how easily i can have an impact on nature you know in terms of you know i remember my parents we would go to up into the mountains all the time and you'd see people that would carve their names in the aspen trees with a mm. knife it'd be there forever right and the tree would just die basically and so like they as far as back as i can remember it's like never ever ever do that and i was like yes mom like i will never mm -hmm. do that right but i guess what i'm trying to say is it informs your motivations as a photographer later in life so like i don't when i go out with my camera to these places in nature i'm not thinking about like what are, what can i do in order to maximize my financial gain or what can I do in order to get the most likes on Instagram? Or how do I make it to where I get more people following me on Facebook or whatever? Like my motivations aren't about money or fame or any of or business, you know. Even mm -hmm. though that stuff that stuff can follow naturally, I think if you have a if you're passionate enough, people will see that. But what I'm doing is I'm I'm just there. I'm experiencing these places and just loving where I'm at and trying to capture those moments and share them with other people and for and for myself for my future so I can look back and like oh that was one of the most amazing mountain climbs I've ever done and I really want to remember that and so I guess what I'm trying to say is like your your motivations can be informed by your ex past experiences and I think like you said what what I'm seeing a lot of times is that in this digital age right now is people are motivated more about fame and Instagram likes and things. And not everyone, obviously. Mm -hmm, I mean, right. I'm overly generalizing for sure, but I've actually put a lot of thought into this particular challenge because, you know, it's, it doesn't do us any good to just go out there and tell people like, you're, you're, do you're taking photos for the wrong reasons. You know, like <laughs> yeah. who am I to say like uh, why you should be taking pictures and what motivates you as an artist? Uh, that's, that's just not right in my opinion. But what I can do is I can help people maybe slow down and do some introspection into why are you taking photos? What purpose do these photographs have? What is driving your behavior right now? Is it that you want people to thumb up your video on YouTube or or on Facebook or 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 is it because you want to share your personal experience with nature, with others, and with yourself. So I think my advice for people would be, you know, slow down and think about why, why are you doing this? Is it, is the reason, is a good reason? Yeah. You said initially that you picked up a camera because you wanted to document your, your hikes and your, and your tracks. When did it, when did you start thinking of it, of more than just a documentary practice and think about it as a more creative outline? I think I, at one point in time, I was, you know, I actually, I remember I was on this backpacking trip with this, with the camera that I had that I really couldn't shoot raw. And but I'd read a little bit about what raw could do. 
I really wanted to try to take a picture of this mountain at night, but I, my camera ISO only went to like 800 or something and I was like, I, I just want to do more with this. I want to show how beautiful this is, but the equipment that I have is limiting me. So I guess it was through my relationship with these places and my experiences that I wanted to do more and more in terms of showing showing off the real beauty of these places and not just from a hey, here's a picture of that mountain. It's like, I want to really, as best I can, show these places off in the best possible way, in the most realistic way, which early on, my photos were very overly processed. I think that's a pretty common thing for most landscape photographers. But I guess the other thing was, I'd come back from these places that a lot of people haven't been to, and I'd show off these pictures, and they'd be like, wow, these are amazing. Do you sell your photos? Like, what are you going to do? And, you know, as more and more people came to appreciate the photos I was taking, it kind of was a light bulb that went off that maybe maybe this could be more for me. Mm. You know, maybe it's not just about documenting my trips. Maybe it could be an, a more of a deeper expression of my relationship with these places. And were you already aware of the other landscape photographers, not even not just the, the current ones, but from the ones in, in, in the past that had already produced a body of work? Or did that come as a result of you beginning your forays into producing images yourself? Yeah, it's funny. I look, I look back on my early early days as a photographer and I don't I don't remember I don't remember looking at a lot of other people's photographs. I were I really wasn't aware of, you know, who the popular photographers were or, or even just techniques for taking pictures. I that came later when I was when I was really trying to learn how to I mean, I getting out of auto mode and you're shooting mm-hmm. raw and it's like, oh, how do you, what's a good composition look like? And that, that all came later when I was researching and trying to educate myself on, on how to take better photos. So yeah, I didn't really have a strong interest in photography and other people's photos until I started getting more into it. Yeah. What, what do you think was one of the more difficult things to learn? Was there a particular aspect of landscape photography that was a big catalyst for you taking it from one level to another level? Can you point to, to a, a particular element, whether it was in the creation of the images or in post-processing that, that was that for you? Yeah, I'd say it's probably a combination of three different things. The first was, uh, you know, learning the exposure triangle and understanding the relationship between aperture and ISO and shutter speed and getting out of auto and shooting in, in, in manual. And then also shooting in raw and learning how to, what tools were available in order to manipulate the raw file in order to accentuate certain aspects of the image that you wanted to bring out or to um, show to other people. And then I guess thirdly was um, I had a insatiable appetite uh, to consume other people's images. And, and I would spend a lot of time, I remember, looking at other people's images that I really liked and then asking myself, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. Like, which then forced me to experiment and try to do things to, to emulate um, what I saw in other people's images that I liked. So it was kind of a combination of those three things. Yeah. One of the things that I came to really appreciate about outdoor uh, landscape photography was the not only the attention that these photographers would put, put into the quality of the light, but the determination and the persistence they had to have when they would hike into a location that wasn't just a couple of footsteps away from their car 
and face the possibility that all those things wouldn't come together. I mean, for me, for me, I would be like, wow, that is uh, a degree of patience and persistence that I don't know I would always have. But it has to be a it has to be an important part of being a nature photographer. For sure. Talk to me about developing that kind of sensibility and and how do you sort of optimize your circumstances so that when you do go out and you go hiking and you go to a, a location that may require you hours to get to, that it pays pays off, even though there's really no guarantee that it will. Yeah, it's um I would say it's a it's a meticulous exercise in planning and expectation management. <laughs> I can remember early on in, in when I first had my first DSLR and when I got when I finally got a full frame camera and I was really getting serious into it and I was I was doing a lot of trips to relatively iconic locations close close ish to where I lived. You know, and, and, and you had this kind of pre-planned vision of I'm going to capture this amazing sunrise at Garden of the Gods or at this location or that location, or I'm going to go to this place. And like I had just you have all these pre-visualized notions of what it is you're going to photograph and, and see. And then you get there. And like 75, 80% of the time, that stuff doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. So I I can remember several times where I was incredibly discouraged as a photographer and almost gave up because it was just, you know, you would, and I made the mistake of looking at what other people were doing all the time, like, um, which I think can be a very dangerous thing as an artist is to spend a lot of time worrying about what others are doing. Mm Mm-hmm. So I would be looking at other people's images like, gosh, you always get the greatest light, right? <laughs> like, what, how the hell do you do that? And then you're like, oh, it's because they, they don't have a full-time job and they don't have kids and they don't have a family. And like, you just start having all of this <laughs> negative self-talk about like, well, that they can do that because they have way more time than I do. And, mm-hmm. and they're just luckier than I am, right? But really, where, where I've come to grow as an artist um, over the last couple of years is when I go out on these trips now, I don't have any expectations of what I'm going to bring back. And I'm much, much more open to finding scenes or finding shots uh, that may not be in good lights, or maybe it's an abstract of a pine cone on the ground, or maybe it's a, a particular way that a tree is shaped or something like that. Like I'm much more open to finding images that uh, speak to me instead of seeking out a very specific composition that I saw someone else take mm-hmm. and then being super disappointed because the light wasn't right. <laughs> so I think it, I, I, it's really helped me a lot in terms of enjoying landscape photography, but also just it, it takes you to different places as an artist that uh, it op- opens up your, your, crea- your creative side and, and it forces you to, to just see things differently. And, and the cool thing is you can take photos when the light isn't good and that's fun, right? Like that's why we're doing this is it's supposed to be fun. So I think, I think if, if people just had very low expectations of what it is they're actually going to take a picture of, it, it will go a long way in terms of uh, keeping you open-minded, but also keeping you sane. <laughs> I have an exact same approach when it comes to street photography. Yeah. I want to go out there and sometimes the light and is just not there. And it's like, well, I'm here. What am I going to do? And it used to be I would come home just pissed. Oh, the light light sucked. I didn't get what I thought I was going to get, and it was all a wash. And I was actually writing something this morning, and I talked about this whole idea that there are never really any 
bad photographs because even with the bad photographs, I'm learning something. And right. it's the it's the practice of going out there and making pictures and making pictures. And even though the great majority of them don't work, those photographs end up informing how I see and how I photograph. So their value may not be immediately seen when I blow up that image on the computer screen. But over time, it's it becomes an, an accumulation, accumulation of information of experience that ends up leading me to be able to make a photograph that leverages all those things that I'm always in the hunt for because I've had to face situations where I didn't have them and yet still had to pull out uh, a, a good image. So I appreciate that in, in landscape photography, but even more so because of all that hiking <laughs> and, all that, and all, that, all that gear that you normally have to go out there you know, carrying not just camera equipment, but, you know, stuff for your safety or if you're going to be out there for multiple days camping and man, I, I'm a simple man. I just want one <laughs> camera, one lens and, 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 and I'm good. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny. I don't know about you, though, but uh, some of my best photographs have been have come out of situations where where maybe the light wasn't as good or, you know, you, you didn't have a, a, a pre or the, the thing that you were planning on shooting didn't really materialize. But then you it forces you to kind of think differently about the scene or or, you know, what if I what if I hiked over there? And saw what was uh, on the other side of that hillside or up on that ridge, and then you're like, "Oh my God, why didn't I do this to begin with?" So I think I think if if we go out into the fields and just be have an open mind about what we can what we'll find, it it really does help open up the possibilities. But I think it also it forces you to try things that maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. But like you said, it will help inform future images yeah. and and be a better photographer. In the, in the long run. You, know, you mentioned you know, being married and having a son. And I think when you're young and single, getting up and going out and making photographs is very no, no problem. You can go anytime as long as you got gas money and you got film and, or enough charge batteries. You go to it and make photographs. But you get married, you have kids, maybe multiple kids, throw in a dog, and it becomes all the more difficult to do all that stuff. And a lot of people end up using that as an excuse for not creating those kinds of pictures, right? But, Absolutely. But, you know, you've, met, you've managed to do that because you're not working full-time as a professional landscape photographer, but you nevertheless, I, I see your body of work, you've been pretty consistent in terms of producing a good amount of work that's really quality, top-notch stuff. So what have been, what have, what have been some of the more personal things that you had to, to learn to do in order to maintain your passion and, and the time for your photography? Yeah. So gosh, well, it's become even more difficult now that I'm, I, I do a, a weekly podcast as you probably, <laughs> you're probably equally as challenged there as well. But, um, you know, I think I'm going to go way back in time here and it's, I, I I was actually really influenced and got a lot out of an episode of your podcast, probably 2011 with Jay and Verena Patel. Oh, yeah. Huh. And uh, I remember I was sitting by the pool in Kauai, I think, listening to that, or okay, I think that's where I was. Okay. And I remember uh, you asked a similar question of them, like, and, and what they said was really formative to me at the time and still is today. And that is like, you don't always have to be out 
taking photos. Um, what's important is that when you do go out, that you maximize you maximize your ability to bring back a good image. So, for example, this year I've probably only gone out to take photos maybe five or six times total, but each time I bring back at least one or two photos that I like. And so for me, it's not about sa sacrificing things in your personal life or, 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 you know, gosh, sorry, I can't go to your, your play or your, your musical performance, son, because <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to be taking photos for the next four weeks, which don't get me wrong. That sounds awesome to be able to do that, but you know, I can't. So instead, what I've tried to do is just find at least a, three or four times a year that I can devote a, a, several days at a time and just maximize that time and then go into it with very low expectations. So. Um, I don't know if that answered your question at all. No, but. no, no but that, that makes sense because I think it's like for me, I've been keeping track of my productivity throughout the year. And what I've been doing is I've been doing these quarterly assessments of my work. And I recently put in a, a put a YouTube video where I talk about this sort of process. So I can take a look at, you know, not only how many photographs I've made, but what kinds of photographs I've made and, you know, and starting and starting to collect the pictures that I really like. So that at the end of the year, when I choose my year's best, I will have already sort of started the process. And this past month that we just finished, I hardly shot anything. Right, because there was just a bunch of different stuff that came up. I was finishing a book. Uh, my mother-in-law's moving in with us. Her vehicles, her, her vehicles are in my driveway. I'm trying to sell them. The water heater went out. The AC went out when it was 102 degrees outside. It was just like so much stuff that required me just to sort of sit here. So when I looked at at the images that from last month, there was virtually nothing. Even though I had my camera with me, I was just so distracted from from all of that. But I still had the perspective of everything else that I'd done throughout the year. And just like you described, you know, I haven't taken a big trip so far. I'm going to take one in September. But what little time I did have, I still was able to produce some really good work. And even though it may have been just like 15 minutes that day or half an hour that day, I was like, okay, let me leverage this time and try to make as good an image as I can. If for nothing else, just to keep in practice, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. to make sure that I'm carefully seeing, even though the circumstances may not be ideal, it's like, how can I, how can I make the most of it? And that's, you know, even though we practice a different type of photography, we're still, still talking the same language when it comes to that. Oh, for sure. And I mean, there's times where I just, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I know a lot of landscape photographers get this way, where you, you might go weeks or months where you just don't have any motivation to take photos for whatever reason. And then it'll just strike you like, I, I need to go out and take some photos. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I kind of ebb and flow that way. Like I'll go through a period of time where I, I want to take photos every single day for a month. And then I'll go through other phases where I, I don't want to take any photos for the next two months. I don't necessarily understand why that is. Like it's, I can't target specific reason. I think it's kind of one of those things like I really want to do that and I really don't. And I guess the other thing that's, you know, with landscape, it's really hard to just pick up your camera and go take some photos, like at least good photos. <laughs> like you mm -hmm. have to, um, at least for my own personal standards, like I, Typically, you have to travel a little bit out of out of town and find a location or go to a place that you've kind of had in the back of your mind. Like I remember when I first moved here to Durango, 
I, I drove up this county road a few times, and I remember thinking, like, this would be a cool shot, like right here. So I, I kind of do that, too. I catalog, as I'm kind of out and about, I catalog different places that, oh, I think that place would be kind of interesting, and I just kind of keep that in the back of my mind, or I might make a note on my phone or something, like, uh, this is a cool, this would be a cool spot. And then when I'm feeling that itch, and the light looks like it might be good, or, you know, the weather is looking interesting or something, then I'll have something that I can quickly say, like, Okay, there was that one spot. I'm going to go to that one spot that I remember. So that's been helpful, too, is just kind of having a running list of ideas in the back of my mind that I can go to whenever I get feel the itch. (laughs) As people started saying that they really loved your images and whether you sell prints, you eventually started, you know, selling prints. That can be a real difficult transition to make because you're making photographs for your own pleasure, for your own satisfaction. All of a sudden, people show an interest in purchasing a print. And then the challenge becomes putting a monetary value to your work, right? So tell me about you sort of coming to terms with with that in terms of, okay, how do I navigate this? How do I sell them? What sizes do I make? How much do I charge for these things? That, that sometimes is just as difficult as, as making the photographs, if not more so. But tell me about your experience. Yeah, well, I don't know if anyone else has had this challenge, but early on when people, when I actually had started getting print sales and things like that, it, it definitely shifted my my attention a little bit in a direction that I didn't like. It was it was forcing me to go out and take, take images of places that I maybe normally wouldn't be interested in just because I knew it would be a, something that people might buy. Mm-hmm. And then oh, yeah. on top on top of that, I was also processing the images in ways that I look back on and I'm like, the only reason I did that is because I thought it would sell more, you know, like it doesn't make the photo better. So it, it tainted, it tainted me as an artist. I just in retrospect, it definitely did that. So I'd say in the last year and a half or so I've kind of stepped back from that and focused less on shooting for what I think would sell a print and focus more on taking pictures of things that I think would be interesting to myself Mm -hmm. and if those two things come together that's awesome and if they don't oh well perfectly honest with you I think when I look back on the last year and a half of my my photographs they're much better photos because because i the, the reason why I'm taking them is just much more from an artistic perspective and of self-fulfillment. And then to answer your question, like, how do you, how do you figure out how much to sell prints for? I'll let you know when I figure that out. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, t- what I, I don't know what it's, it's a funny thing. Like, I actually have done a lot of reading about that. I, I bought a couple of years ago, I bought that Elaine Brio book about marketing fine art photography. And that was sort of helpful in terms of thinking about just, you know, how do you price your work and what's the approach you should take in terms of maximizing your income in terms of selling prints, which I think that book was written before there was a, I mean, today there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of talented artists out there. And the value of the photograph, I think, has diminished a little bit. But I've definitely found a niche market of people that really like going into the mountains and like want to remember those places as well. So that's typically the people that buy my photos is people that have that have a, I don't know, a super appreciation of Colorado mountains and the places that I've been as well. So I typically, I do a lot of research, like how, what are other people selling prints for, people that I that I appreciate or I like their work and I try to figure out like, okay, I don't, 
I don't want to overprice my work because then you're going to make it to where people that may maybe don't have a ton of money can't buy your work, but then you also don't want to under sell yourself because A, you'll never make any money, which kind of sucks. And then B, there's this weird mentality out there that if it's price too low, it's not worth something. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a funny thing. I know like I, I know several photographers that price their work very, very high because they're gonna attract those kinds of buyers. So it's it's an interesting dilemma that I think most landscape photographers struggle with. Yeah, it's part science, part voodoo, I think. It is, for sure. <laughs> it is. Well, you've been doing a podcast like like me where you interview photographers, so and it's a weekly podcast. Why the hell would you do that? <laughs> when, I, when, yeah. I, when I started, I didn't know any better, right? Now it's just like, oh my God, I, I can't imagine starting a podcast now, but what spurred you to, to want to do it yourself? Well, so when I originally started the podcast, I didn't set any goals in terms of how many I would put out a week or a month or a year. And I also didn't set any financial goals for the podcast at all. It was just something, it was like a passion project um, and it still it still is. But I would say back in January, I got laid off from my job and I kind of was trying to figure out like maybe this podcast and photography can be more of my main income. So that's at at that time is when I said, okay, I want to produce a podcast a week. I want to produce extra content on Patreon so that people that really appreciate the podcast can, you know, kind of like the Amanda Palmer model, like, and I know you also have a Patreon as well, but Mm -hmm. you know, if people like your stuff, they're going to pay you for it. Like if all you have to do is ask, right. And for the most part, that's worked out pretty well. If anything, I guess I feel like I've kind of, I have an unwritten contract with the people that are supporting me that says, hey, we're going to pay you to produce content on a weekly basis. And on my end, I'm going to try to uphold that as best as I can. And to your point, it is very tough. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, just the logistics of emails and texts and trying to get people to schedule and and trying to find a time that works for both of you and the technology and helping people navigate the, uh, does your microphone work? Does like, you know, it's, there's a lot to it for sure. And not only that, but also the, the editing after the podcast is completed. So yeah, it is a lot of work, but I will tell you so funny. I kind of contradict myself a little bit because I was talking about like what motivates you if it's money, that's weird, but it's nice to have money. Um, I don't feel ashamed to ask people for money, but I would say the, the non-financial rewards of having this podcast have been immeasurable. So uh, I've developed a lot of relationships with, with a lot of fantastic people and artists and photographers out there that I, I wouldn't have if I didn't have this project. I think it's, it's opened up some dialogue about some topics that are near and dear to my heart and my mind that I think is benefiting the landscape community. Um, so I don't know, I, I want to keep that going because I, yeah. I like, I get a lot of, I'd say 90% of the feedback I get is positive, so which is cool. <laughs> so I want to keep that going. And it's not for myself, but it's it's bigger than just me. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned getting laid off. And I can imagine that considering how you came up, you mentioned both of your parents at one point getting laid off simultaneously, that you yourself getting laid off could be a big trigger for a lot of fear, a lot of financial insecurity. But how helpful was it that you had a passion that you were invested in? How did that help in terms of contending with not only the circumstances of being laid off, but also whatever feelings that might bring up? Hmm. 
Um, I mean, it definitely helped in terms of um, having something I could even contemplate focusing my energy into in terms of allaying some of those fears and insecurities that you're describing because those absolutely happened. I mean, you know, like there is no way that my wife could have supported us on just her income. I mean, we had just bought a house. Mm, <laughs> it was like wow. just really bad timing. Yeah, I I mean, truthfully, it was a it was definitely a blessing to be able to have that to kind of fall back onto because a lot of the people that that like my photography throughout the years kind of saw that, you know, I kind of put it out there like, hey, I got laid off. If you've ever wanted to buy any of my photos, this is probably a good time if you want to help me out. And uh, I had a lot of people help me out. I mean, I got really lucky. Um, I think I had, I want to say like eight or nine print sales in January alone. And I mean, I actually made more money on photography in January than I had like the whole previous year mm. uh, just because I could put my energy into it more and probably helped that I could get people to help me out. But on the flip side of that, you know, I'm, I'm relatively risk risk averse in terms of like, you know, you hear about a lot of people going full time as a landscape photographer. And I interview a lot of people that have done that recently and kind of listen to their struggles. And, 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 you know, it's definitely not all puppy dogs and ice cream when it comes to running your own business as a photographer. I, I, I really, I spend a lot of time and thought and energy into thinking about, could I, could I make this work full time? Like, could this be something I do? And it, on one hand, it was really nice to be able to have that freedom to think about being able to do that. On the other hand, I was like, I just, I, there's so many risks there that it just freaked me out. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, it scared me. So I decided not to do that. (laughs) No, but it's. Uh, you know, but I think I think that that is uh, that's a choice that everybody needs to make, and that going full time is not for everyone. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a successful creative career as a photographer. Uh, that's one of the things I really like about today's age of photography. Even though some people say photography is dead, Wim Wenders this this week uh, said, said as much because of the. Uh, the, 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 the smartphone generation, but I don't agree with that. But, uh, I think that, you know, there's, there's so much that photography can be to a person's life beyond simply being able to earn a living from it. And that increasingly I'm seeing that that is just as valid as someone who earns uh, a living full time from making photographs. And I think that part of part of that is that because of the internet and YouTube and people are realizing that it's not just making pictures 24-7, that there's a lot involved in creating a career. And some people are just saying, you know, I don't want to do that. I just want to enjoy making photographs and sharing them. There's no shame in that, you know. No, not at all. I mean, and to your point, I've, I've spoken with a lot of photographers that, you know, Landscape photography, or I mean, really any form of photography, it, this could apply to, but it, it means a lot more to them. You know, it has nothing to do with money. It's like they, they're, they, they've had depression. Maybe they've had social anxiety. Maybe they've had health issues. Like photography can help people overcome all kinds of trials and tribulations in their life. And I think, uh, I think that's really exciting to to know that that people can do that that photography can be that vehicle for people to enhance their life and you know that's why uh 
I get, I get into all these debates on, online about post-processing and, and all this stuff. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I do feel like, you know, if, if, if photography and, and creating art, whether that art is something that we agree looks good or not or whatever, if, if, that, if that has a secondary purpose or even a primary purpose for that person in terms of overcoming something in their life, then who cares, right? Like, yeah. m- more power to them to, to be able to, uh, to do that. I think it's, we have to keep that in the back of our minds all the time. Like, we don't necessarily know why someone is taking photos or why they're processing in a certain way. Like, yeah. Yeah, as long as they're doing what they love, man, life is too short not to. <laughs> yeah. So my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Yeah, so one photographer. I knew you were going to ask this question and I should have done a little bit more thought into it because I asked the same question on my podcast. <laughs> so, and so it's like I have all these names that run through my head all the time. I think one person that would be really interesting for your guests to hear from, he's a photographer out of the United Kingdom. His name is Alex Nail. Hmm. He does a lot of similar photography as me, only it's way better. <laughs> like he, <laughs> he, he does a lot of time-lapse photography. But what makes him really interesting is that he's, he's incredibly articulate in terms of talking about digital manipulation and, and, and a natural representation of, of landscapes that I think is pretty counter to kind of what the mainstream thought thought is right now in terms of whatever goes. Um, I think he has some compelling ideas and thoughts on, on that particular topic that, uh, that he, he articulates it in a way that I don't think anyone else is able to right now. So okay. interesting. Well, Matt, thank you so much for making time with us, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And um, I've been, been a huge fan of, of your podcast for, I mean, ever since I got into photography, I've been listening to your podcast. So keep up the good work. I just hope to hear from more landscape photographers on here as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Past episodes where I've shared some of my personal journey and thoughts, have received some of the bigger responses from listeners. I've been both humbled and surprised that these episodes have resonated with so many of you. And though I still want the candid frame to be more about my guest than about me, I thought I'd add an occasional new segment where I offer you observations, reviews, and commentary, not just about photography, but anything that I find interesting, inspirational, or just downright fun. We call it The Last Frame. I recently received a copy of Dotan Sagai's new book, Venice Beach, The Last Days of a Bohemian Paradise. It's a beautiful book that captures a unique and very special part of Los Angeles. As I flipped through those pages, I was reminded not only of the photographic richness that's there, but how this small stretch of beachfront has for decades brought together people who would otherwise never cross paths. Venice is a special kind of people magnet that draws every kind of person imaginable. It's a complex mix of race, ethnicity, age, and culture. If Los Angeles is a segregated and compartmentalized city, Venice Beach, at least in my lifetime, 
is the antithesis of that. It was one of the things that fascinated me as a kid when my family and I would travel there. We'd start at Santa Monica Pier and then walk the 2.7 miles to arrive to a world that was unlike anything I was used to in South L.A. I was enamored not only by the rich diversity of people, but especially all those characters. The bodybuilders, the roller skaters, the street performers, and of course, the impossibly beautiful men and women who walked past, wearing virtually nothing. But Venice was more than just a source of amusement or recreation for me. It offered times when my family would be out, doing something together. There had been plenty of that when we were younger, but as time passed and my parents' relationship became more and more strained, such moments became few and far between. Instead, my brothers and I would find our own diversions, our own distractions, which, at least for me, led to a lot of isolation. Years later, after my parents had divorced and I had graduated college, my brothers and I decided to take a trip to the beach to spend time walking along the same path we had done as kids. It had been years since we had done anything together. And though we never verbalized it to each other, I think each of us wanted a moment where we could be together as a family again. As we walked down the path, I noticed to my right a young blonde girl around six or seven, sitting at a collapsible card table, appearing to be selling something. There were a few people around her, looking at whatever she had to sell. I looked at the sign, which read, Shells, for sale. I kept walking, and then I thought, wait a second, this girl is selling seashells at the beach. There had to be a story there, and so I approached her and asked her what she was doing. She explained that she was selling shells, just like the sign said. But I asked her, why would I want to buy a shell from you? If I could pick up one for free just a few yards away, she explained that these shells were not from here, but from back east, where she and her family had been vacationing. I then asked her how much money she had made, and she told me over $30. I was impressed. I told her that I'd buy one, but only if I could also make her photograph. She agreed, and I got a shell, and she got another dollar. I spotted a man who I assumed was her father sitting in a lawn chair beneath the shade of a tree, and I asked him to flesh out the story for me. And as she had told me, she began picking up shells while on their trip. And she told her father that when they got home, she intended to sell these shells at the beach. He had no idea where she had gotten the idea from. But as she gathered more and more shells, he could see that she was pretty serious about this. I think that he expected that she would forget about it when they got home. Because it was weeks after they had returned before she eventually set up her table. Though he didn't say as much, I suspected that he hoped that she would forget about it. Because how crazy is that? If anyone told you that they were going to start a business selling shells at the beach, imagine what you'd think. The idea is laughable. It's idiotic. There's no way that something as stupid as that could work. Yet, in the few hours that she had been there, and by the time I found her, her silly idea had paid off. Later, when I processed the film and got prints made, I sent her and her family a copy of the print. I soon received a thank you letter from the girl's father, telling me that his daughter now displayed the photo in a frame next to her bedside. That was over 25 years ago. And during that time, my thoughts have often returned to that young girl and her impossible idea.
Whenever I'm working towards something that I want to achieve and experience those moments of self-doubt and insecurity, when I have those moments that tempt me to simply give up or move on to something else, I think about her. I think of her when I want to give up or not put in that extra bit of effort or when I try to convince myself that abandoning a dream is somehow more bearable than failure. But that's not true. It isn't true for me now, and it sure wasn't true for that little blonde girl selling shells at the beach. I wish I still had that letter, because I would love to find her to learn what kind of woman she's grown up to be. And as I go through my old slides and negatives, I hold out hope that I'll find that strip of negatives and make another print, which I'll place on my desk. And I'll look at it, and I'll be reminded that striving for the impossible can be a wonderful and perfect thing. That's the last frame. Thanks to Matt for spending time with us. To find out more about Matt and his work, visit mattpainphotography.com. And remember to check out his podcast, F-Stop Collaborate, and listen. If you're a fan of The Candid Frame, take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps our ranking, but it also helps create awareness of the show. But it only takes a few minutes, you'll be making a huge difference. Take the time to do it today. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you help us to not only meet the cost of production, but help us to bring you these episodes each week. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so via PayPal. It was your support that allowed us to create the free Candid Frame app that provides the easiest way to access every episode of the Candid Frame. Available for both Apple iOS and Android, you automatically receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet. You can easily search for any episode based on name or keyword and save your favorite episode for repeated listening. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.